pretty quickly, I learned that the languages people learn are driven by the realities of families, migration, and economics. Factors quite removed from the technical aspects of how best to learn a language. And I learned much more. That's Sean Pratt speaking. Sean is an award-winning audiobook narrator, or reader as they're known in the audio world, and he's reading the words that I wrote in my new book, America's Bilingual Century, How Americans Are Giving the Gift of Bilingualism to Themselves, Their Loved Ones, and Their Country. Welcome to episode 47, the first episode of season four of the America the Bilingual podcast. I'm Steve Levine, the founder of the America the Bilingual Project. It's good to be back behind the mic again, and if it seems like I went AWOL for 2020, I was busy finishing this book, America's Bilingual Century, which celebrates a new narrative for languages in America that's taking hold from coast to coast and everywhere in between. You'll hear lots of people's stories in this book, successful bilinguals, beloved language teachers, scholars, historians, sociolinguists, sort of proud I can pronounce sociolinguists, and you'll also hear my own story, my own language biography as I call it, because I felt it might help other adults realize that they too can learn another language at any age. For the next few episodes, we'll share some chapters with you from America's Bilingual Century with the incomparable Sean Pratt reading. And he starts right now with the book's preface. Preface One morning in my middle age, I woke up feeling disgusted with my monolingualism. Perhaps it was remembering all the tapping on my shoulder, all the invitations I had declined over the years. Maybe it was traveling around the world and being tired of being the guy in the room who had to be accommodated with English. Possibly it was what compels people, arriving at a certain age, to pick up a paintbrush or sit down at a piano bench. Whatever it was, it hit me hard. It felt like a desperate thirst. I told myself that I had to become at least conversational in Spanish, although I didn't know what that really meant. I don't generally make New Year's resolutions, but that first of January, in my 54th year of life, I resolved to begin learning Spanish. I had no idea what I was getting myself in for. With an impatience born from decades of keeping my Spanish-speaking self in the waiting room, I threw myself into Espanol with a passion. I bought the 664-page Spanish for Dummies and sprang for the complete package from Rosetta Stone. I bought a box of a thousand flashcards from Quick Study, which also publishes laminated study guides. I bought some of those, too. They're cheerful colored boxes showing all manner of dense conjugations and forms of speech. I hired a Berlitz tutor, a monumentally patient woman from Colombia. She came to our house to work with me for 45 minutes every Tuesday before our family sat down to dinner, and then returned home, I imagined, to a stiff 
drink. In my car, I listened to the encouraging audio programs of Pimsler Spanish three times through, and then I took up the audio programs of Michelle Thomas for more hours of speaking where no one could hear me. If there was a way to buy my way into Spanish, in dollars and in hours, I was up for that. But wait, there's more. I watched YouTube videos, including 13 Ways to End a Conversation in Spanish. I thought up several more. I downloaded all manner of apps on my phone, including apps for children, and the captivating Duolingo, with its green birdie named Duo. For nine months, I set a half-hour goal with Duolingo and met it. If I could play my way into Spanish, I was up for that too. Being this determined, obsessive, my wife says, I began by brute force to make some progress. But then I would hear some Spanish speakers talking and have no idea what they were saying. That was depressing. I still felt a long way from being able to hold an actual conversation. Meanwhile, I continued with my regular work and social life, which included attending occasional cocktail parties. When I would casually mention that I was studying Spanish, I heard reactions that almost made me spill my Sam Adams. Everyone, it seemed, had an opinion and didn't hesitate to lay it on me. Why bother? The whole world speaks English, pronounced one woman. For evidence, she described the trip she and her husband took to Africa, or maybe it was Peru, where everyone spoke English. From others I heard, why bother? Again, this time followed by, technology will make language learning obsolete. We'll all have Google implants or whatever in our ears doing instant translation from any language. Yet other people reacted very differently. They would lean toward me and ask in confidential tones, How are you doing it? You could hear in their voices that they, too, had the thirst. They hoped I would share some method or app that would make it fast and easy. Yet from others, a frown would cross their face. I took four years of French and can't utter a sentence. And others stated with authority, The only way to learn a language is immersion. Their implication being that whatever I might be doing here in the U.S. was a waste of time. Others would decree, The only way to learn a language is when you're young and then proceed with a story about some four-year-old who speaks three languages without missing a beat. Her mother speaks only French to her, and her father, being from Germany, only speaks German, and their Korean nanny. On occasion, a person would respond sarcastically, Well, that's a good idea, you're learning Spanish, since Spanish is taking over the country. This might be followed with, Why don't these people learn English? My grandparents learned English when they came to this country. It was sink or swim. Now, it's press one for English. Give me a break. Don't you think everyone who comes to America needs to speak English? I do, as a matter of fact. But some people seem uninterested in anything I might say about learning another language until I first pledged my allegiance to English, the whole English and nothing but the English, so help me God. Still, other people would help set me straight with a reality check. You know, in Europe, everybody speaks four or five languages. Of course, that's because they have to, the country's being so small. But here in the U.S., well, where would I even use French if I could speak it? 
from an engineer, I heard, Well, coding is a language too. That's what we should be teaching kids today. By merely mentioning that I was studying Spanish, I had clearly touched a nerve among my fellow Americans. Maybe it was the alcohol. I wanted to argue with those who told me I was wasting my time, and I wanted to help those who shared my thirst to learn a language themselves. Yet, I didn't know what to say to either group. I decided I had better learn a few things about bilingualism and language learning. I began reading books like Bilingual, Life and Reality by François Grosjean, The Language Instinct, How the Mind Creates Language by Steven Pinker. Is That a Fish in Your Ear? Translation and the Meaning of Everything by David Bellos. How to Learn a Foreign Language by Paul Pimsler and the many books written by that great illuminator of language, John McCorder. One thing I quickly learned was that scholars use the term bilingual to mean people who speak two or more languages. This is easier than trying to specify how many languages people speak and to what degree. That's the practice I'll follow in this book. I started asking nearly everyone I could about their own language biographies so much so that I became quite predictable to my family. Watch out, he's going to ask you what languages you speak. When I took Lyft or Uber, I asked if I could sit up front. Riding shotgun, I heard scores of language biographies from some of our country's newest residents. Pretty quickly, I learned that the languages people learn are driven by the realities of families, migration, and economics. Factors quite removed from the technical aspects of how best to learn a language. And I learned much more. The bilinguals I interviewed all appeared to love being bilingual. It seemed to be one of the most important and fundamental aspects of their lives. Conversely, I never met any monolinguals who said they liked knowing only one language. In fact, when I met Americans who sounded like native English speakers, and asked if they spoke other languages, the most common answer I got was, I wish I did. Sometimes I'd hear, well, I can read French pretty well, but I can't speak it. And a good number of my fellow Americans just shrugged their shoulders and said, I'm not good at languages. I felt their pain. Yet, it seemed to me that we were retelling old narratives. Were they still valid? Are Americans really hopeless monolinguals? Is there no point anymore in our digital age in working hard to become bilingual? Is it too late for adults in any event? The questions began to take over many of my waking hours, and some of the hours I was supposed to be working, too. My day job as CEO of Levenger started to feel burdensome after 27 years, I handed over the reins to someone else and was now free to focus on my newfound passion of bilingualism. But how best to pursue it? My friend, Doug Rao, told me about a year-long fellowship he had taken at Harvard. It was designed for executives who had finished the first chapter in their careers and yearned to do something new, which usually involved saving the world in one form or another. Another friend, Paul Sappho, told me about a similar program at Stanford. Feeling like a high schooler again, I applied to both programs and, to my surprise, was accepted by both. 
greedy for knowledge, I spent one year at Harvard, followed by another at Stanford, finally returning to California some 40 years after leaving San Diego. The number of language biographies I collected exploded. But more than that, I was able to interview some of our nation's leading scholars on bilingualism. Linguists, sociolinguists, and language teachers. And I gathered advice from successful bilinguals on how they prevailed in earning that title. I could finally start to pull together some informed responses to those pronouncements and questions thrown at me at those cocktail parties. What I was hearing and learning painted a picture of an America quite different from what my fellow cocktail drinkers and I had assumed. My earlier self, as a science writer, was whispering in my ear, and I decided I'd have to write a book to share the changes I was seeing in America. One of the interviews I conducted was with Marty Abbott, then head of the American Council on the Teaching of Foreign Languages, now known simply by its acronym of ACTFL, pronounced ACTFUL. She invited me to her offices in Alexandria, Virginia, just outside of Washington, D.C., and patiently answered my rather basic questions about bilingualism in America and the challenges her 14,000 teachers set for themselves. I learned that there's an expectation among language teachers that they not only teach their subjects well, but also advocate for the importance of language learning. Knowing I had spent my career in business and clearly had a passion for bilingualism in America, Marty asked me to join the public relations campaign that Actful was about to launch called Lead with Languages. It would be great if you could bring in some voices from the business community who could tell Americans how important language skills are in business, she said. Happily, I'm a member of YPO, the world's largest organization of company presidents. As soon as I sent out a request for American members who were bilingual and used their language skills to advance their business, the emails started flowing in. I was able to interview several presidents at length, posting my written interviews on the Lead with Languages website. Then, Marty called me and asked for something more. What we'd really like are audio interviews. Well, sure, that sounds cool, I said, thinking to myself, how hard could it be? I'll just hit a record button when I'm interviewing people. When I hung up with Marty, it began to dawn on me that I had no idea what I had agreed to do. My experience as a science writer had been in print. The only recordings I had done were on a Sony cassette recorder, if anyone remembers those. And it was only to get the quotes right. I knew nothing about doing interviews that would be heard by others. Wasn't that radio? I knew enough, however, to call a friend who did know something about professional audio recording. When Maya Thomas heard what I had agreed to do, she said cheerily, You just signed up to do a podcast. A podcast? I felt woefully uninformed. It's basically a radio show, but people listen on demand rather than it's being broadcast at a certain time, said Maya, whose career in publishing has included being an audiobook producer and director. You'll need a producer. First, join the Association for Independence and Radio. I joined that group, 
known by its acronym of AIR, AIR, and put out a request for a producer. To my incredibly good fortune, a young Mexican fellow named Fernando Hernandez signed on as my producer. He blew away the other candidates with his 10 years of radio experience and his skills for creating programs weaving voice, sound, and music into compelling stories. After some coaching from him on how to record professional-level audio, we were off. I found it daunting and enormously time-consuming. In the beginning, it took me several weeks of solid work to create episodes that lasted a mere 15 or 20 minutes. I'd had no idea what went into the kind of radio shows we hear daily on NPR, not to mention all the captivating podcasts that were exploding in popularity in America. The episodes found an audience, and listeners shared with more listeners. In the terminology of podcasts, plays shot up to 5,000, then 20,000, then 50,000, with public radio stations picking up some of them. It seemed we had tapped into something. And it was evolving into something more than a podcast. From talking with friends and colleagues, the idea was born for a small organization that would report on the developments in bilingualism in America that were going largely unreported. I assembled a team and, with the help of some crowdsourcing, we decided to call our project America the Bilingual. Without really knowing what we were doing, we were shining a light on a story waiting to be told. A story of the unique form of American bilingualism emerging into our national consciousness. You can be part of this story. No matter what your prior experiences in language learning, even if you think you're inept at languages, even if you had a terrible experience in school, you can adopt a language, become a lifelong bilingual, and experience the joy that comes with entering another world and living a larger life. You can help your loved ones do the same. And you can help America find its voice, both with the English that unites us and with the hundreds of other languages that help define us. Becoming bilingual is a journey of a thousand miles that begins with one step. Since you will be walking far, I hope this book will serve as your trusted compass. I hope you enjoyed hearing the preface to America's Bilingual Century. For the next episode, you'll learn something very important, that as much as we new language learners are concerned with how to learn our next language, figuring out how turns out not to be the most important thing. So be sure to join us for our next episode, which contains a new chapter from America's Bilingual Century. If you'd like to buy the book, you'll find it available most anywhere you shop for books, and not just an audio, but also as an ebook and good old-fashioned print, both paperback and hardcover. If you'd like to read more excerpts, just go to the book page of americathebilingual.com. My thanks to the America the Bilingual Project team, including Caroline Dowdy, our audio and digital book maven, Fernando Hernandez and his production house, Esto No Es Radio, who provides sound design and mixing. Mim Harrison, our editorial and brand director. Carlos Plaza, our creative director. 
and Carla Hernandez at Daruma Tech, who manages our website, americathebilingual.com. I invite you to follow America the Bilingual on Facebook, along with the Lead with Languages campaign run by our friends at ACTFUL, the American Council on the Teaching of Foreign Languages. Thanks for listening for America the Bilingual. This is Steve Levine.